The Good Funding the Evil Even if an individual is never personally victimized by law enforcement, never has a run-in with the police, and sees little if any direct impact by government upon his day-to-day life, the myth of authority still has a dramatic impact, not only in his own life, but also on how the existence affects the world around him. For example, the millions of compliant subjects who feel an obligation to surrender a portion of what they earn to the state, to pay their fair share of taxes, continually fund all manner of endeavors and activities which those people would not otherwise fund, which almost no one would otherwise fund, and which therefore would not otherwise exist. By way of taxes, those claiming to be government confiscate an almost incomprehensible amount of time and effort from the millions of victims and convert it into fuel for the agenda of the ruling class. For example, millions of people who oppose war are compelled to fund it via taxation. The product of their time and effort is used to make possible something they morally oppose. The same is true of state-controlled wealth redistribution programs, e.g. welfare, Ponzi schemes, e.g. social security, the so-called war on drugs, and so on. Most of the programs of government would not exist if not for the belief among the general population in a moral obligation to pay one's taxes. Even government programs purported to have noble goals, such as protecting the public and helping the poor, become bloated, inefficient, corrupt monstrosities, which almost no one would willingly support if there was no law requiring them to do so. In addition to the waste, corruption, and destructive things which government does, with the wealth it confiscates, there is also the less obvious issue of what the people would have done with the money otherwise. As government takes wealth of the producers to serve its own purposes, it also deprives the producers the ability to further their own goals. Someone who surrenders $1,000 in taxes to the ruling class may not only be funding a war he morally opposes, but he will also be deprived of the ability to put $1,000 into savings or donate $1,000 to some charity he considers worthwhile or pay someone $1,000 to do some landscaping work. So the damage done by the myth of authority is twofold. It forces people to fund things they do not believe are good for themselves or society, while simultaneously preventing them from funding things that they do view as worthwhile. In other words, subservience to authority causes people to act in a manner which is, to one extent or another, directly opposed to their own priorities and values. Even the people who imagine their tax dollars are doing good by building roads, helping the poor, paying for police, and so on, would almost certainly not fund the government version of those services, at least not to the same degree if they did not feel compelled to do so. Any private charity that had the inefficiency, corruption, and record of abuse that the AFDC, HUD, Medicare, and other government programs have would quickly lose all of its donors. Any private company as expensive, corrupt, and inefficient as government infrastructure programs would lose all of its customers. Any protection service which was so often caught abusing, assaulting, and even killing unarmed, innocent people would have no customers. Any private company that claimed to be providing defense but told its customers it needed a billion dollars every week 
to wage prolonged war on the other side of the world, would have very few, if any, contributors, including among those who now verbally support such military operations. The feeling of obligation to pay taxes seems to be little hampered by the fact that government is notoriously wasteful and inefficient. While millions of taxpayers struggle to make ends meet while paying their fair share of taxes, politicians waste millions on laughably silly projects. Everything from studying cow farts, to building bridges to nowhere, to paying farmers not to grow certain crops, and so on, and billions more are simply lost, with no accounting of where they went. But much of what people make possible through the payment of taxes is not just wasted, but is quite destructive to society. The war on drugs is an obvious example. How many people would voluntarily donate to a private organization which had the stated goal of dragging millions of non-violent individuals away from their friends and families to be put into cages? Even the many Americans who now realize the war on drugs as a complete failure continue, via taxes, to provide the funding which allows it to continue to destroy literally millions of lives. Even the most vocal critics of the various abuses being perpetrated by the ever-growing police state are often among those making that abuse possible by providing the funding for it. Whether the issue is blatant oppression or corruption or mere bungling bureaucratic inefficiency, everyone can point to at least a few things about government that do not meet with his approval. And yet, having been trained to obey authority, he will continue to feel obligated to provide the funding which enables the same bungling, corrupt, oppressive government activities that he criticizes and opposes. Rarely does anyone notice the obvious inherent contradiction in someone feeling obligated to fund things that he thinks are bad. Of course, people who work for non-authoritarian organizations can also be inefficient or corrupt, but when what they are doing comes to light, their customers can simply stop funding them. That is the natural correction mechanism in human interaction, but it is completely defeated by the belief in authority. How many people are there who are not currently being forced to fund some government program or activity that they morally oppose? Very few, if any. So, why do those people keep funding things that they feel are destructive to society? Because authority tells them to, and they believe that it is good to obey authority. As a result, they continue to surrender the fruits of their labors to fuel the machine of oppression, a machine which otherwise would not and could not exist. Governments produce no wealth. What they spend, they first must take from someone else. Every government, including the most oppressive regimes in history, has been funded by the payment of taxes, by loyal, productive subjects. Thanks to the belief in authority, the wealth created by millions of people will continue to be used, not to serve the values and priorities of the people who work to produce it, but to serve the agendas of those who, above all else, desire domination over their fellow man. The Third Reich was possible by millions of German taxpayers who felt an obligation to pay up. The Soviet Empire was made possible by millions of people who felt an obligation to give the state whatever it demanded. Every invading army, every conquering empire, has been constructed out of wealth that was taken from the productive people. 
the destroyers have always been funded by the creators. The thieves have always been funded by the producers. Though the belief in authority, the agendas of the evil have always been funded by the efforts of the good. And this will continue, unless and until the most dangerous superstition is dismantled. When the producers no longer feel a moral obligation to fund the parasites, the usurpers, the destroyers and controllers, tyranny will wither away, having been starved out of existence. Until then, good people will continue to supply the resources which the bad people need in order to carry out their destructive schemes. Digging Their Own Graves Sadly, the belief in authority even makes people feel obligated to assist in their own enslavement, oppression, and sometimes death. In fact, only a small percentage of the coercion of government is implemented by the enforcers of authority. Most of it is implemented by its victims. The ruling class merely tells people that they are required to do certain things, and most people comply without any actual enforcement taking place. As one impressive example, tens of millions of Americans every year fill out lengthy, confusing forms known as tax returns, essentially extorting themselves. If the victims of the IRS agreed to pay, but only if the government figured out their alleged tax liabilities, the system would collapse. Every return is basically a signed confession, with the victim of the extortion racket not only revealing everything about his finances, essentially interrogating himself, but also even figuring out the amount that will be stolen so the thieves do not have to. But all of the unproductive and unpleasant inconveniences and bureaucratic hassles that people subject themselves to, simply because they were told the law requires it, are nothing compared to the serious symptoms of the belief in authority. Based upon the mythology about duty to country and the laws imposing military conscription, the draft. Millions of people throughout history have become murderers for the state. Only a small fraction, so-called draft dodgers, ever resisted, and they have usually been despised by their fellow countrymen for being cowards or lacking patriotism. In the case of many laws, it can be difficult to distinguish between people who obey because of a simple fear of punishment and those who obey out of a feeling of moral obligation to bow to the commands of politicians, the law. With military conscription, however, it is easy to tell the difference, because compliance is usually far more dangerous than any punishment government threatens against those who refuse to comply. If the choices are to comply and possibly die a gruesome death on some battlefield on the other side of the world, or to disobey and possibly go to prison, it is unlikely that the threat alone is why so many people register and show up for duty when called. In short, the level of compliance with the draft, at least in the past, shows quite clearly that most people would rather commit murder or die than disobey authority. There could hardly be a better indication of just how powerful the superstition of authority is that thousands upon thousands of otherwise civilized, peaceful human beings will leave home sometimes traveling halfway around the world, to kill or die simply because their representative ruling classes told them to. Every soldier is both an enforcer and a victim of the superstition of authority, whether he volunteered or was drafted. 
Fighting to defend innocence against aggressors is a noble cause and is often the intention of those who join the military. But in a hierarchical military regime, the soldier becomes a tool of the machine rather than a responsible individual. Rather than being guided by his own conscience, he is controlled entirely by the orders he receives through the chain of command, and every time his obedience leads him to do something immoral, which is quite often, he not only harms his victims, he also harms himself. After the Vietnam War, as one example, many American soldiers came home with their bodies intact, but with deep psychological problems. How much of the mental damage was a result of witnessing carnage, and how much was a result of personally creating carnage is difficult to say. A prolonged fear of imminent death can, of course, cause serious psychological problems, as can inflicting death upon others. Violent confrontations can be quite stressful, even when the individual feels entirely justified, such as when defending his family from an attacker. But to engage in mortal combat where no one, including the combatants, seems to have any clear idea what the purpose or justification for the conflict is, as occurred in Vietnam, seems to add an additional degree of psychological trauma. As many combat soldiers have attested to, once in the hell of war, any vague, noble cause or justification to fight is usually forgotten, and all that is left is the desire to stay alive and to hope that one's friends stay alive, both of which are served much better by going home or by not joining the military in the first place. And the number of people who simply walk away is quite small, for one simple reason, because it would constitute an act of disobedience to a perceived authority. The average soldier, though he may have the courage and strength to throw himself into mortal combat, does not have the courage and strength to disobey a perceived authority. As in many cases of authoritarian coercion, the victims of military conscription almost always far outnumber those trying to implement it. Even when people are legally commanded to sacrifice their minds and bodies for the sake of turf wars between tyrants, Simple passive disobedience by a significant portion of drafties would make the war machine grind to a halt. What punishment is there to fear that is worse than the result of compliance? The usual result of fighting in war is prolonged terror, physical and mental pain and suffering, dismemberment or death. Nonetheless, even after witnessing the horrors of war firsthand, very few people can bring themselves to disobey authority, take off the uniform, and walk away. A testament to the power and belief in authority is the well-documented, if seldom discussed, fact that the atrocities committed against the German Jews by the Nazis were often carried out with the cooperation and assistance of Jewish police, such as occurred in the Warsaw Ghetto. In their culture, just as in almost every other culture, the people had been so thoroughly convinced that obedience is a virtue that, even though someone new was in charge, they still felt obligated to do as they were told, even if it meant violently oppressing their own kinsmen. But what may be even more disturbing but indisputable is the fact that many millions of people in history have assisted in their own extermination because authority told them to. For example, during the Holocaust, many hundreds of thousands of Jews, on their own power, boarded the cattle cars of the very trains that would take them away to their deaths, without trying to hide, 
run away, or resist. Why? Because those pretending to be authority told them to. While it was in no doubt true that they were not all aware of exactly what laid in store for them at the other end, they still handed themselves into the custody of a machine that obviously meant them harm. There is a certain feeling of comfort and safety that one gets by conforming and obeying, believing that things are in someone else's hands, and having the trust that someone else will make things right is a way to avoid responsibility. Authoritarian indoctrination stresses the idea that, no matter what happens, if you simply do as you are told, and do what everyone else does, everything will be okay, and those in charge will reward you and protect you. The body counts from one government atrocity after another show how misguided such a belief truly is. Had the victims of the legal oppression and murder simply withheld their assistance, even if they did not lift a finger to forcibly resist, the world would be a very different place today. If the Nazis had to physically carry each Jew, dead or alive, to the gas chambers or the crematoriums, the level of murder would have been dramatically lower. If every slave sold into bondage refused to work, there would soon have been no slave trade. If the IRS had to calculate the tax due and then directly take it from each taxpayer, there would be no more federal taxation. In short, if the victims of authoritarian extortion, harassment, surveillance, assault, kidnapping, and murder simply stopped assisting in their own oppression, tyranny would crumble. And if people went a step further and forcibly resisted, tyranny would collapse even more quickly. But resistance, whether passive or violent, requires the people disobey a perceived authority. And that is something that most people are psychologically incapable of doing. Ultimately, it is the belief in authority among the victims of oppression, even more than the beliefs of the ruling class and their enforcers, which allows tyranny and man's inhumanity to man to continue on such a large scale. The Effects on Actual Criminals Ironically, in situations where obedience would actually improve human behavior, authority has no effect. Those individuals, for example, whose own conscience did not stop them from robbing or assaulting their neighbors because they do not care about the usual standards of right and wrong, also do not care what authority tells them to do. It is only those who are trying to be good who ever feel compelled to obey authority. The belief in authority is a belief about morality. It is the idea that obedience is morally good. To those who do not care about what is deemed good, the very people whose consciences are not enough to make them behave in a civilized manner, the myth of authority has no effect. To put it another way, only those who do not need to be controlled, i.e. those already trying to live moral lives, feel any obligation to obey the controllers. Meanwhile, those who pose a real threat to peaceful society feel no moral obligation to obey any authority anyway. Generally speaking, all commands from authority, including inherently justifiable commands such as do not steal and do not murder, are always either unnecessary when directed at good people or ineffectual when directed at bad people. It is difficult to imagine any situation in which an individual would otherwise have no qualms about committing theft, assault, 
or murder, but would feel guilty about violating laws which prohibit such actions. A distinction should be made here between moral obligation and fear of retaliation. A thief who feels no moral obligation to refrain from stealing will also feel no moral obligation to obey laws against stealing. However, if he perceives a threat to his own safety, whether from the police or anyone else, he might be deterred from robbing someone. But that deterrent effect comes entirely from the threat of violence, not from the claimed authority underlying the threat. This means that supposed authority is never what stops actual crimes from happening, and that an effective deterrent system does not require authority at all. This is discussed in further detail in the following. Part 3D, The Effects on the Spectators The Sin of Non-Resistance It is obvious that the belief in authority affects the perceptions and actions of law enforcers, and also affects the perceptions and actions of those against whom the laws are enforced, but even the perceptions and actions of the onlookers, those who are not directly involved, also play a huge role in determining the state of human society. More specifically, the inaction of spectators, who quietly allow legal coercion to be inflicted upon others, has an enormous impact. History is full of examples proving that Edmund Burke was right when he said that all that is necessary for evil to triumph is for good people to do nothing. The mass murder committed by the regimes of Stalin, Mao, Hitler, and many others was made possible not just by the willingness of the enforcers to carry out their orders, but also by the victim's imagined obligation to obey authority and by the belief held by almost all onlookers that they should not interfere with the law being carried out. The perpetrators of mass injustice, including mass murder, are always hugely outnumbered by their victims. And if you add up the number of spectators, all those people who could have intervened, it becomes obvious how significant the actions, or inaction, of mere spectators can be. Of course, some people will fail to intervene in a situation simply as a result of basic fear. A witness to a mugging who does not dare to intervene is not condoning the mugging by his inaction. He simply values the benefit of his own safety that comes from inaction more than he values whatever benefit he thinks he could be to the victim by stepping in. There are many cases in which the belief in authority makes people hesitate to get involved in a conflict not just out of fear, but out of a deep psychological aversion to going against authority. There are two ways this can cause spectators to stand idly by while legal injustice is inflicted upon someone else. The spectator can believe that the injustice is actually a good thing, because it is the law. Or second, the spectator can disapprove, but his willingness to actually act out against the law enforcers, or even to speak out against authority, is stifled by his trained subservience. Either way, the outcome is the same. The spectator does nothing to stop the injustice. But the two phenomena will be addressed separately. Imagining legal evil to be good. There are literally millions of examples that could be used to demonstrate how the perception of the general public is dramatically affected by the belief in authority. 
Just consider how the average person views and judges an act when it is committed by one claiming to be authority, as opposed to how he views and judges the exact same act when it is committed by anyone else. Here are a few examples. Number 1. Scenario A. An American soldier in a foreign country is going house to house kicking in doors, carrying a machine gun and pointing it at complete strangers, ordering them around and interrogating them, while searching for insurgents. Scenario B. An average citizen in his own country is going house to house kicking in doors, carrying a machine gun and pointing it at complete strangers, ordering them around and interrogating them, while searching for the people he doesn't like. The first is viewed by most people as a brave and noble soldier, serving his country, while the latter is viewed as a horribly dangerous, probably mentally disturbed individual who should be disarmed and subdued at all costs. Number 2. Scenario A. An officer of the law is manning a sobriety checkpoint or a border checkpoint, stopping everyone to ask if they are in the country legally or if they have been drinking or to otherwise see if any indication or evidence of criminal activity can be found. Scenario B. A man without a badge is stopping every car that drives down his street, asking every driver if he is an American, asking whether he has been drinking, and looking into his car for anything that appears suspicious. The cop who engages in such intrusive, obnoxious harassment, detainment, interrogation, and searching is viewed by many as a brave law enforcer doing his job, while anyone else behaving that way would be viewed as psychotic and dangerous. Number 3. Scenario A. A Child Protective Services worker receives a case file and, based upon an anonymous tip, shows up at a house to question the homeowners, with the stated purpose of deciding whether they are fit parents, or whether the state should forcibly take the children away from them. Scenario B. An average person, based upon a rumor he heard from a stranger, shows up at a home of other strangers, asking them questions and threatening to take their children away if the questionnaire is not satisfied with the answers. Again, the government worker is imagined to be just doing his job, while the average individual who does the same thing is seen as a dangerous, probably mentally unstable person. This is not to say that there could never be a situation which a child should be taken away from his parents for the child's own protection. But such matters would be taken extremely seriously by any individual who had to take personal responsibility for his actions. A bureaucrat who is merely acting as a cog in the machine of government, on the other hand, will do such things with far less hesitation and less justification, because he will imagine that something called the law is solely responsible for whatever he does. Number 4. Scenario A. A pilot in the United States Air Force, having been given orders to do so, flies to the proper coordinates and delivers his payload to the intended target. The result is that some mercenaries of a different authority are killed, along with a number of civilians who happen to be in the area. Scenario B. An American citizen acting on his own, loads up a plane with homemade explosives, flies over a building in the city where a vicious street gang is known to reside, and drops the ordinance. The result is that several gang members are killed, as are a dozen innocent bystanders who happen to be passing by on the street. The average American views the civilian casualties from the first scenario as unfortunate, 
but chalks them up to the hazards of war. The military pilot is viewed as a hero for having served his country and is given a medal. In the latter scenario, however, the average American views the pilot as a lunatic, a terrorist, and a murderer, and demands that he be put in prison for the rest of his life. Whether an act has been formally declared legal by politicians, and whether it is done at the behest of authority, has a huge impact on the perceived morality and legitimacy of the act. In a very real sense, those who do the bidding of authority are not even regarded as people, in that their behavior and actions are judged by such a drastically different standard from those of average human beings. As another example, a lot of people would be alarmed at the report of a man with a gun in their neighborhood, unless they heard that the man also had a badge. People judge behavior largely upon whether such behavior has been authorized or forbidden by authority, rather than whether the behavior is inherently legitimate. When citizens are called into an authoritarian court to serve as jurors in a criminal trial, for example, it is routine for the judge to tell the jury that they are not to concern themselves with whether the accused did anything wrong. They are to decide only whether or not his actions were in accordance with whatever the judge declares the law to be. Of note, those in positions of power have, over the years, deliberately and methodically worn away at the old tradition known as jury nullification, whereby a jury could, in essence, overturn what they viewed as a bad law by returning the verdict of not guilty, even if they believed the accused had actually broken the law. Every jury still has that power, but authoritarian judges do everything they can to keep the jurors from realizing it. Even when not on a jury, most people still judge others through authoritarian colored glasses, judging the goodness of another based heavily upon whether he obeys the commands of politicians, i.e. whether he is a law-abiding taxpayer. Compare how the average citizen would view the two individuals described below. Individual A has no driver's license, works under the table to avoid paying taxes, never registered for selective services, owns an unregistered, unlicensed firearm, occasionally smokes pot, sometimes gambles illegally, and lives in a cabin which he owns but for which he has no occupancy permit and which has a deck on the back of it, which he built without first getting a building permit. Individual B has a driver's license, pays taxes on what he earns, registered for the draft, owns a registered firearm, occasionally drinks beer, sometimes plays the state lottery, and lives in a government-inspected and approved house with a government-inspected and approved deck out back. The two live otherwise similar lives, with both being productive and neither robbing or assaulting anyone else. Their behaviors, choices, and lifestyles are very similar in almost every way, except that there are laws against the actions of individual A, but not against those of individual B. That alone without any other substantive difference in what they do or how they treat other people would cause a lot of people to view individual A with a degree of contempt, while viewing individual B with respect and approval. In fact, if individual A was accosted, detained, and even physically assaulted, 
e.g. tasered, beaten, and handcuffed, by law enforcers, even if he had never threatened or harmed anyone, many believers in government would opine that he had it coming, that he deserved to be attacked and caged for having disobeyed the commands of politicians. This tendency of onlookers to blame the victims of authoritarian violence is incredibly strong. One who accepts the superstition of authority, the idea that some individuals have the right to forcibly dominate others, and that those others have a duty to comply, will assume that if authority is using violence against a person, it must be justified, and therefore the victim of such violence must have done something wrong. This pattern shows up in different situations, when, for example, U.S. troops kill civilians in some foreign country. Many Americans are desperate to believe, and therefore automatically assume, without a shred of evidence, that the dead victims must have been insurgents, or collaborators, or at least sympathizers with the enemy. As another example, when the Branch Davidians near Waco, Texas, were subjected to a military assault, Following the prolonged physical and mental torture, followed by mass extermination, many Americans were quick to assume that anyone that government would do that to must have deserved it. The American tyrants fostered this attitude by fabricating various rumors and accusations in order to demonize the victims of that violent, fascistic assault on nonviolent people. Actually, the incident was a result of a publicity stunt by the ATF based on rumors that some people in the group possessed illegal gun parts. Many people assume that if someone was assaulted, prosecuted, or imprisoned by agents of authority, then that person must have done something wrong, and must have deserved what was done to him. This assumption may come from a refusal of people to consider the possibility that the government they rely on for protection is actually an aggressor or it may come from not wanting to consider the possibility that anyone, including himself, could be the next helpless victim of authoritarian violence, even if he has done nothing wrong. Regardless of the cause, the end result is that, when evil is committed in the name of law, many spectators immediately hate the victims and rejoice at the pain and suffering that is inflicted upon them. Obligation to do wrong While everyone is aware that there are laws against robbery and murder, except when they are committed in the name of authority, the average person is completely unaware of the tens of thousands of pages of government-issued statutes, rules and regulations, federal, state, and local. But even when they have little idea exactly what the law does and does not allow, most people hold a general belief that obeying the law is a good thing, and that breaking the law is a bad thing. In fact, even when a person is strongly opposed to a particular law, believing it to be unjust, he still may hold a general conflicting belief that laws ought to be obeyed, and that it is justified to punish those who disobey. This psychological paradox is quite common. In fact, with many people vehemently lobbying to change what they view to be bad laws, while supporting the idea that as long as it is the law, people should obey it. Such mental contradictions are common in the context of the belief in authority, but are rare outside of it. For example, 
No one would argue that it is morally wrong to try to steal an old lady's purse, but also morally wrong for the old lady to hang on to her purse. But the concept of a bad law, in the mind of those who believe in authority, boils down to a similar paradox, a bad command, which is also bad to disobey. The spectator who believes in authority may view a particular command, enacted by the masters and implemented by the enforcers, as being unimportant, unnecessary, counterproductive, or even stupid or unjust, while at the same time believing that people still have a moral obligation to obey that command, simply because it is the law. Examples of the effects of such a viewpoint abound, ranging from the mundane to the horrific. Here are just a few. Number 1. At 2 a.m., on a wide-open, straight, empty road running through an unpopulated farmland, a driver slows down but does not stop at a stop sign at a cross street. A motorcycle cop, hiding a hundred yards away behind some bushes, turns on his lights. Almost everyone, given those facts, would agree that the driver did not harm or endanger anyone, or anyone's property. And yet, most people would agree that the cop would have every right to demand money from the driver, via a traffic ticket. In other words, even though they would concede that the only thing bad about what the driver did was that it was technically illegal, they believe that that alone justifies the forcible robbery of the driver. Taking it one step further, if the driver attempted to leave the scene rather than accept the ticket, most spectators would agree that the cop would have every right to chase down, capture, and imprison the driver. Number 2. A government inspector from a state board of health conducts an inspection of a restaurant. The restaurant is perfectly clean and organized, and the inspector finds no indication that anything there poses any risk to anyone's health. However, he nonetheless finds several technical violations of the local code for the restaurant. As a result of those violations, not because they create a danger to anyone, but because they are against the rules, the restaurant owner is fined hundreds of dollars. Again, even though the restaurant owner did not harm or endanger anyone or anyone's property, most people would view it as legitimate for the owner to be robbed by those acting on behalf of government. And if the owner attempts to resist such robbery, whether by trying to conceal the technical violations, or by bribing the inspector, or by refusing to pay the fine, he would be seen as immoral by most people, and the enforcer would be seen as having the right to use whatever means necessary to achieve compliance with the law. Number 3. A man drives his friend home from a party. Knowing he would have to drive, he did not have any alcohol to drink. Though his friend did, he drops his friend off and heads home. He notices a police sobriety checkpoint traffic stop ahead and remembers that his friend left his half-full beer bottle in the car. Knowing that it is illegal to have an open container of alcohol in his car, he covers it up. He has not harmed or endangered anyone and, in fact, has acted quite responsibly, acting as designated driver to make sure that his friend would arrive home safely. However, he still broke the law, albeit accidentally, by driving the car with an open bottle of beer in it, and then he tried to hide the evidence of that fact. If he was caught doing so and arrested, few people would view the cop as the bad guy in the situation. 
Number four. A man sells a shotgun with a barrel a quarter of an inch shorter than the law allows. The weapon is no more lethal than a shotgun a quarter of an inch longer, and no one who was involved threatened or used violence against anyone. But the man, having been caught with an illegal item, is subject to a paramilitary invasion of his property, followed by an armed standoff, in which several people are killed. Unfortunately, this example is not hypothetical. It happened to Randy Weaver at Ruby Ridge in 1992, and he was not merely caught selling an illegal shotgun. He was enticed into doing so by an undercover law officer. The result of the armed invasion of Weaver's property and the subsequent shootout and siege was that Mr. Weaver's wife and son were killed, and he and his friend were wounded, though it would be absurd for anyone to claim that there is a moral difference between possessing a shotgun with an 18-inch barrel and possessing a shotgun with a 17-and-3-quarter-inch barrel, and even though that allegation was the entire legal justification for the armed assault and confrontation, many spectators would still fault Randy Weaver viewing him as the bad guy for having allowed himself to be coaxed into breaking an arbitrary, completely irrational, not to mention unconstitutional, law. That is the power of the belief in authority. It can lead many people to view a gang of sadistic, murderous thugs as good guys, and to view their victims as the bad guys. To most people, breaking the law, without specifically which law, has an automatic negative connotation. They view disobedience to authority not merely as dangerous, but as immoral. But to the government believer, something even worse than committing a minor victimless crime is openly disobeying an agent of authority. The average spectator, when observing the interaction between an authority figure and anyone else, will often view with disdain anyone who does not immediately and unquestioningly answer any questions and comply with any requests from a man with a badge. Even if the person complies, but exhibits an attitude toward the authority figure, any attitude other than meek subservience, many spectators will be quick to condemn the one who fails to grovel. And one who runs away from the police, even if he had done nothing wrong in the first place, is viewed with scorn by most. And when someone who runs, or hides, or refuses to cooperate is beaten up, tortured, or even murdered by law enforcers, many of the spectators opine that the victim should have just done what the police officer told him to do. And when someone actively resists an authority figure, few have the gumption to take the person's side under any circumstances, even with mere words. Just as a well-trained dog will not bite its master, even when sadistically maltreated, so those who have been trained to bow to authority are usually psychologically incapable of bringing themselves to lift a finger to defend themselves, much less someone else, from any aggression committed in the name of law and government and authority. Indeed, due to their authoritarian indoctrination, most people would more eagerly condemn their fellow victims than join together with their fellow victims to actually resist tyranny. There is, of course, a difference between saying that it is not smart for someone to do something and saying that it is immoral for someone to do something. It is one thing to say that it is stupid for someone to mouth off to a cop, and another thing to say that doing so is actually immoral, and the one who does so therefore deserves whatever abuse or punishment he receives. 
The believers in authority often express the latter opinion about anyone who defies the police, regardless of the reason. The idea of average people imposing justice upon wayward law enforcers existentially terrifies statists. Even when a law enforcer has done something as serious as committing murder, in the eyes of the well-indoctrinated, the only civilized course of action in such a situation is to beg some other authority to make things right, but never take the law into one's own hands. People may complain about and condemn legal injustice, but few are even able to consider the possibility of engaging in premeditated, illegal resistance, even when agents of government are inflicting vicious brutality upon unarmed, nonviolent targets. And if, through prolonged brainwashing, people can be rendered psychologically unable to resist the oppressions done in the name of authority, then it makes no difference whether those people have the physical means to resist. Modern tyrants and their enforcers are always outnumbered and often outgunned by their victims by a factor of hundreds or thousands, yet tyrants still maintain power, not because people lack the physical ability to resist, but because, as a result of their deeply indoctrinated belief in authority, they lack the mental ability to resist. As Steve Biko put it, the most potent weapon in the hands of the oppressor is in the mind of the oppressed. Double Standard on Violence The double standard in the minds of those who have been indoctrinated into authoritarianism when it comes to the use of physical force is enormous. When, for example, a law enforcer is caught on film brutally assaulting an unarmed, innocent person, the talk is usually about whether the officer should be reprimanded or maybe even lose his job. If, on the other hand, some civilian assaults a police officer, nearly everyone will enthusiastically demand, often without wondering or asking why the person did it, that the person be caged for many years. And even if the person resorts to the use of deadly force against the supposed agent of authority, hardly anyone even bothers to ask why he did it. In their minds, no matter what the agent of authority did, it is never okay to kill a representative of the God-called government. To the believers in authority, nothing is worse than a cop killer, regardless of why he did it. In reality, using deadly force against one who pretends to be acting on behalf of authority is morally identical to using deadly force against anyone else. An act of aggression does not become any more legitimate or righteous simply because it is legalized and committed by those claiming to be acting on behalf of authority and using whatever force is necessary to stop or prevent an act of aggression, whether the aggression is legal or not, and whether the aggressor is a law enforcer or not, is justified. Of course, the risks involved with resisting legal aggression are often much higher, but that does not make it any less moral or justified. Many of the reasons now used by law enforcers to forcibly take captive, such as engaging in peaceful demonstrations without a permit, or photographing law enforcers, or government buildings, or not submitting to random stops and questioning by law enforcers, have no shred of justification when viewed without the authority myth. As such, resisting such fascist thuggery 
even if it requires deadly force to do so, is morally justified, albeit extremely dangerous. But most people are literally incapable of even considering such an idea. Even when they recognize unjust oppression, they imagine that the civilized response should be to let the injustice happen, and then later beg some other authority to make amends. When faced with legal aggression and oppression, there are only two possibilities. Either the people are obligated to allow law enforcers to inflict all manner of injustice and oppression upon them, and then complain later, or the people have the right to use whatever level of force necessary to stop injustice and oppression from occurring. To say, for example, that someone has the right to be free from unreasonable searches and seizures by government agents, as the Fourth Amendment states, would mean nothing if the victim of such tyranny was obligated to allow it to happen at the time and then complain about it later. To have a right to be free from such oppression logically implies the right to use whatever force is required to stop such oppression from happening in the first place, even if that requires the killing of police officers. But the very thought terrifies those who have been trained to always bow to authority. Most of those who speak of unalienable rights still balk at the thought of forcibly defending those rights against authoritarian assaults. To say that someone has the right to do something, while also saying that he would not be justified in forcibly defending such a right against government incursions, is a contradiction. In truth, what most people call rights, they actually perceive as government-granted privileges, which they hope their masters will allow but which they have no intention of forcibly protecting if such rights are outlawed by government. For example, to have an unalienable right to speak one's mind, the right to freedom of speech, means that the person also has the right to use whatever level of violence it takes, up to and including deadly force, to defend against government agents who try to silence him. Though the point makes loyal believers in authority very uncomfortable, the very concept of a person having unalienable right to do something also implies the right, if all else fails, to kill any law enforcers who attempt to stop him from doing it. But in truth, there is almost nothing that government can do, whether it be censorship, assault, kidnapping, torture, or even murder, which would make the average statist advocate violent, illegal resistance. The reader is invited to test the depths of his own loyalty to the myth of authority by considering the question of what would have to happen before he himself would feel justified in killing a law enforcer. Law enforcers consistently escalate disagreements to the level of violence every time they try to arrest someone or force their way into someone's home or forcibly take someone's property. And authoritarian enforcers will then keep increasing the level of violence they use until they get their way. The result is that the people, unless they are willing to engage in open revolution against the entire system, will sooner or later bow to the will of the ruling class or be killed. And though the mercenaries of the state are always using force, or the threat of force, to subdue and subjugate average people, the moment their intended victims respond to violence with violence, most spectators will instantly identify the victim of aggression, the one who used force only to defend against an attack, as the bad guy. This glaring double standard, 
The idea that it is okay for authority to commit violent acts of aggression on a regular basis, but horribly evil for common folk to ever respond with defensive violence, shows how drastically the belief in authority can warp people's perception of reality. Ironically, in considering other places and other times, almost everyone accepts, even praises the use of illegal violence, including deadly violence, against agents of government. Few people would still insist that Jews who lived in 1940s Germany should have continued to try to work within the system by voting and petitioning the Third Reich for justice. Instead, those who illegally hide, ran away, or even forcibly resisted, as occurred in the Warsaw Ghetto, are now seen by almost everyone as having been justified in doing so. Even though they were technically criminals, lawbreakers, and even cop killers, but authoritarians, in their own time and in their own country, not only continued to condemn any who illegally tried to avoid or resist oppression, but cheerfully gloat over the suffering of such people when they are punished by government. To delight in a tax cheat being punished, for example, as many Americans do, is akin to a slave taking pleasure in the whipping of a fellow slave who tried to escape. There may be an aspect of simple envy in this, a feeling that, if one subject has to be victimized, it's not fair that another escapes such suffering. This contributes to the fact that taxpayers, i.e. those who have been forcibly extorted by the ruling class, often express resentment of anyone who has avoided being similarly extorted. Oddly, the victims of legal robbery often imagine themselves to be virtuous for having been robbed, and look down on those who, for whatever reason, have not been robbed. The Danger of Inaction One who views breaking the law as inherently bad, regardless of what the law is, may be quick to report to the authorities any illegal activities he is aware of, even if the activities are victimless and constitute neither force nor fraud. Likewise, those who sit on juries in government courtrooms, if they imagine disobedience to authority, breaking the law, to be inherently immoral, are likely to give their blessing to someone being punished, sometimes quite harshly, for doing something which harmed no one and did not constitute either fraud or violence. In the case of the snitch and the juror, however, such actions take out the role of a mere spectator and move him into the role of a collaborator of oppression. The damage done by the belief in authority among the spectators of oppression comes more often from their inaction rather than from their action. Time after time, oppressions, large and small, have been committed right under the noses of basically good people who did nothing about it. To a certain degree, this is a result of simple self-preservation. A person may avoid getting involved simply because he fears for his own safety. But the Milgram experiments showed quite clearly that even without any underlying threat to themselves, most people feel irresistibly compelled to obey authority even when they know that what they are being told to do is wrong and harmful to others. And if they find it difficult to disobey a perceived authority, they will find it even more difficult, if not impossible, to bring themselves to intervene when an authority is exercising its will on someone else. 
The result of the spectators having been trained to be passive, obedient, and non-confrontational can be seen in the many instances throughout the world and throughout history. Of dozens, hundreds, or even thousands of spectators standing around like zombies, watching as agents of authority assault or murder innocent people. Even in the United States, the supposed land of the free and home of the brave, videos continue to surface depicting police brutality occurring right in front of crowds of onlookers who simply stand and watch, not lifting a finger to protect their fellow man against the evils committed in the name of authority. Part 3E, The Effects on the Advocates Legalized Aggression While most people probably imagine themselves to be spectators when it comes to authoritarian oppression and injustice, in truth, nearly everyone is actually an advocate of government violence, in one form or another. Anyone who votes, regardless of the candidate, or even verbally supports some policy or program of the government, is condoning the initiation of violence against his neighbors, even if he does not recognize it as such. This is because law is not about friendly suggestions or polite requests. Every so-called law enacted by politicians is a command backed by the threat of violence against those who do not obey. As George Washington put it, Government is not reason. It is not eloquence. It is force. Most people, in their day-to-day -day lives, are very reluctant to use threats or physical force against their fellow man. Only a tiny fraction of the many personal disagreements that occur lead to violent conflicts. However, because of their belief in government, nearly everyone advocates widespread violence without even realizing it, and they feel no guilt about doing so because they perceive threats and coercion to be inherently legitimate when they are called law enforcement. Everyone knows what happens if someone is caught breaking the law. It may only be a fine, a demand for payment under the threat of force, or it may be an arrest, forcibly taking someone captive, or it may even result in law enforcers killing someone who continues to resist. But every law is a threat backed by the ability and the willingness to use deadly force against those who disobey, and anyone who honestly considers the idea will recognize that fact. But the belief in authority leads to a strange contradiction in how people see the world. Almost everyone advocates that law be used to coerce others to do certain things, or to fund certain things. However, while advocating such actions, knowing full well that the consequences to anyone who are caught disobeying, those same advocates fail to realize that what they are advocating is violence. There are millions, for example, who consider themselves to be peaceful, civilized people. Some even proudly wear the label of pacifist, while advocating armed robbery against everyone they know, as well as millions of strangers. They see no contradiction because the robbery is given the euphemism taxation and is carried out by people who are imagined to have the right to commit robbery in the name of government. The level of denial the belief in authority creates is profound. When advocating political violence, people accept no responsibility for the results. 
Those who apply for government benefits, for example, are asking to receive loot forcibly stolen from their neighbors via taxation. Likewise, applying for a government job amounts to asking one's neighbors to be forced to pay for one's salary. Whether the person receives a direct payment or some service, program, or other benefit, he will usually accept stolen property without the slightest hint of shame or guilt. He may otherwise be perfectly neighborly to the people whom he asked the state to rob. In no other situation does such a strange mental disconnect occur, not only for the one advocating the act of aggression, but also for the victim of it. If, for example, one person had paid an armed thief to break into his neighbor's house and steal some of his valuables, and the neighbor knew he had done so, such neighbors would probably not be on friendly terms, to say the least. Yet the same thing is done using authority, via elections, followed by legislative theft. Neither the thief nor the victim usually perceives anything wrong with it. Author's personal note. I've lost count of how many people have expressed sympathy for me and my wife because we were imprisoned for not bowing to the IRS. But it never seems to occur to our non-anarchist acquaintances that we were caged by the very people they voted for, for disobeying commands which they advocated. As far as I know, not one statist we know has even noticed the schizophrenia and hypocrisy of the activity supporting mass extortion, taxation, and then giving heartfelt condolences to the victims of that same extortion. One can see the supernatural essence of authority in the fact that, among the people who eagerly vote for their neighbors to be legally extorted and robbed, few would ask or pay mere mortals to do the same thing. Few would feel justified in hiring a street gang to rob his neighbors in order to pay for his own child's schooling. But many millions advocate the same thing when they condone property taxes to fund public schools. Why do the two feel so morally different to them? Because those who believe in government believe it consists of something more than the people in it. It is imagined to have rights that no mere mortal has. From the perspective of the statist, asking government to do something has far more in common with praying for the gods to do something than it does with asking people to do something. A statist who demands certain legislation would be horrified and offended if some group of average people offered to provide similar services. Imagine if a street gang made the following offer to a local resident. We'll do a shakedown of your neighbors and use what we can get to pay for things you want. Your kid going to school, fixing the roads, stuff like that. We have to keep a cut for ourselves, of course. And tell us how you wish your neighbors would behave, and we'll make sure they behave that way. If they don't do what we say, we take their stuff or stick them in a cage. If average people made such an offer, they would be condemned for their attempted thuggery. But when the same things are proposed in a campaign speech by someone running for a position in government, and when such things are done in the name of vague political abstractions, such as for the common good, or the will of the people, they are seen not only as allowable, but as noble and virtuous. When the politician says we need to provide adequate funding for our children's education and we need to invest in our infrastructure, he is literally talking about forcibly taking money away from people via taxes and spending it the way he thinks it should be spent.
such aggression is accepted as justified when done in the name of authority, but recognized as immoral if done by mere mortals. This shows that, in the mind of the statist, government is something more than a collective of human beings. Paradoxically, statists will insist that everything that government is allowed to do, and everything it is, comes from the people. All belief in government requires the absurd, cult-like belief that, by way of pseudo-religious political documents and rituals, constitutions, elections, appointments, legislation, and so on, a bunch of mere mortals can conjure into existence an entity that possesses superhuman rights, rights not possessed by any of the people who created it. And once the people hallucinate the existence of such a thing, they will eagerly beg that thing to forcibly control and extort their neighbors. People recognize that mere mortals have no right to do such things, but truly believe that the deity called government has every right to do such things.